there are times, and this is, I'm going to be preaching to the choir here, where we as Christians feel stuck, right? I'm not talking physically stuck like when you sink your four-wheel drive into the mud up to the frame. I've done that, Lord knows, more times than I care to, to remember. Um, but you feel like you can't get out of it. What I'm talking about is, is uh, just stuck as a person, like you're in a place you can't get out of. Um, I've been there a number of times in my life, and I'm guessing you can look back and say there's times when you've been stuck too. For me, um, you know, uh, in my service years, that is in the military, um, I was stuck. I was stuck uh, in a dating relationship with a girl that I knew was just wrong. And I remember almost, almost every night that I would take her home after a date, I would think to myself, I'd drive away, and in the quietness of my car, I would think, man, if I could just cut this thing off, I could really live for the Lord. Now, I know you're thinking, well, I should just take the scissors and cut that cord, right? Well, it's a lot easier to say than it is necessarily to do. And I don't know whether it was a fear of being alone or fear of not finding somebody else, but for the better part of three years, I, I was engaged in this, not engaged, but I was engaged in a relationship that I knew was just wrong. It was not what the Lord had for me, and I, I felt, felt stuck, you know, um, like I, I just couldn't get out of it. And, and I, like I said, I, I'm guessing you can look back and say times in your life where you just felt stuck, like you weren't moving anywhere, and you were in a place that you know God didn't want you. Um, there are probably people here who are stuck. You know, you can be stuck in a, in a, um, a kind of a, what do you call a suffocating cycle of addiction to pornography or alcohol or prescription medication. Maybe it's just a, a relationship you know you shouldn't be in, but you're in it, and it's really hard to get out of. Um, or maybe just spiritually stuck, you know, where you know how the Lord would have you live, but you're just in a place where you're, you're not feeling it and you're not doing it and you're not actively, overtly sinning, but you're also not doing what the Lord wants you to do and you just feel that, that, that stuck place. Well, what are we supposed to do when we feel that way? And, that, and what's, the, what's the way out? Because I believe God always provides a way of escape, right? Uh, he provide, he, we, we don't have to live in that place of being stuck as, as, as believers. And, um, and I believe that Ephesians, Ephesians, Exodus, another book that starts with E, Exodus 6 in the first part of 7 actually provides an illumination or an answer to that question. It gives us some of the causes of how we get stuck as well as is the cure so um, what I'm going to do now is I, I want to read the text, not all of it, but some of it. Um, and if, again, if you're just joining us uh, up to this point, maybe you missed last week, but uh, Moses came into the town at the end of chapter 4, and everybody thought everything was going to go good, and they were woohoo, and they were worshiping God, and then everything got worse, not better, and chapter 5 ended with, with blame with despondence, and with, uh, with Moses actually accusing God of doing evil. That's, that's how chapter 5 ends. Chapter 6 is an answer to that in first part of 7, to get Moses and the people unstuck from where they are. So that's, that's where the story left off. Uh, let me read it, and then we're going to reflect on the causes and the cures of being stuck. As I read, I just want you to take a mental note of two things. How many times the Lord declares his name, I am Yahweh, or I am capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So I just want you to note how many times it's repeated, because it's a lot. And then I also want you to keep uh, an eye out for how many times God says, I will. I 
will. Not I might or I may, but I will. So just keep those two things in mind. But the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out as his land. Now, just as a side note, and I'm going to just give a couple comments along the way. Um, the Lord doesn't defend himself to Moses. He doesn't justify himself when Moses says, hey, you're evil for doing this. God doesn't answer his question or justify himself as God does not need to do, nor does he. He simply says, listen, this is what I'm going to do. And actually, by the time I'm done with Pharaoh, he himself is going to drive you out. That's how it's going to be. Continuing on, verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. So he conveys this message of I wills and I am Yahweh to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let, my people, let the people of Israel go out of this land, out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel uh, and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is that's Moses' objection once again. And then, chapter verse fourteen, there's like a right turn. If you have your, if you're actually looking at the text, you'll notice like all of a sudden there's a, like a genealogy inserted here, like. Uh, you know what a genealogy is, genealogy.com, ancestor.com. Um, he starts in, it's like, these are the heads of the fathers of the houses, the sons of Reuben. And Reuben is the son of Jacob and the firstborn of Israel, Hanosh and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. Then he goes on to Simeon. Then he goes on to Levi, all the way down to Moses and Aaron. So there's this insertion of this genealogy that goes, traces basically Moses and Aaron back to Abraham. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just, for sake of you knowing that nothing is in the Bible by accident, because you could read this and go, wow, somebody screwed up. Like, how does this fit into literature? Ten seconds. Twenty seconds. Right? Like, almost all of the major deliverers in, in the Old Testament, and by deliverers, a small D deliverer, as opposed to a big D deliverer, Jesus, Right? They are introduced by way of genealogy. So Noah, for example, who saved the human race in the flood, or God saved the human race through Noah, um, is introduced by a genealogy that ties him to Adam. So Adam to Noah, that's Genesis 5. 
When Abraham is introduced, he's introduced by a genealogy well that, as well that traces his descent from Noah to Abraham. That's Genesis 11. And here we have in Exodus the introduction, a bit late, but an introduction to Moses that ties Moses to Abraham. You know, because Abraham's son is Isaac, Jacob, and then Reuben, and Simeon, and Levi. So why put it here? Well, I believe it's because it's to tie what Moses is doing, or what we might say God is doing through Moses, to the promises of Abraham. It's like, it's through the seed of Abraham, through his descendants, that salvation would come. And so here, the line is tied between Moses and ultimately Abraham. And I think even farther back to that, Genesis 3. When God said to the serpent, he said, the seed of the woman, that is a child's going to come, and he's going to crush your head. And that deliverance, you get to Jesus, he's introduced by way of genealogy too. Matthew 1, Luke 3, all of it to say that this is my deliverer, this is my promises coming to fruition through the line. So I think that's why it's there. If you have a better answer, feel free. Talk to me afterwards. Now, continuing the story, I want to read the text, and then um, we're going to reflect on it for a couple of moments. The, the story comes right back to where it left off. Like you could have pulled the genealogy out, and we wouldn't have ever missed it. The Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, this is the second time he said it, behold, I am in... I just love the Eeyore voice, you know. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Then chapter 7, it continues. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand, out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against, the, against Egypt and bring out people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So there's the the story, and hopefully you heard a lot of I wills and a lot of times him saying, I am Yahweh. Up to this point, the people of Israel are largely stuck. I don't know if you have paid attention, but... When Moses brought those wonderful words, this is what the Lord says. He said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I am Yahweh, I will, I will, I will, I am Yahweh. This is how they responded, right? They responded. They didn't listen because their spirit was broken and because, or and, because of the harshness of the slavery. It's interesting to me just to think through how this relates to modern experience, right? I mean, they exhibited great faith back in chapter 4, verse 31. When they first heard the news, Moses came into town, and now it says their, their, their spirit has been broken, and there's harsh slavery. God didn't deliver in the way 
that they pictured in their minds. And as a result, they are in a place of despondence. They are in a place of doubt. They are in a place um, of being stuck. They're not listening. And what was true back then, many hundreds and thousands of years ago, it's funny, it's still just true today, isn't it? It's one of the potential causes of people to get stuck is, is pain, disappointment, circumstances that are less than you'd like or less than you pictured or less than you'd hoped. People find themselves in a place of no more passion, no more movement, no more courage. Why? Because God disappointed you. And that, that is one of, not the only one, but one of the causes, potential causes of, of being stuck. I mean, when it says that they were, they were, they were broken, their spirit was broken, it doesn't, doesn't mean that they were grieving. That, that's not this, more is intended. It means that they were in a place where they had lost belief. Their faith was wounded, if not shipwrecked. It's just, they weren't believing anymore. Under the harshness of their circumstances. You tell me, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that true that, you know, when, when, when people experience hard things, it has the potential, if they don't process it correctly, with faith, but rather with fear or doubt, that it jacks up your soul and puts you in a place where, where you find yourself just stuck. You don't know how to get out. I know lots of people like that. I know Christians. I actually should rephrase. People who profess to be Christians who were knocked off course because someone made a racial comment who was a Christian. And they're done with the faith. That is because of this attack or injury, they no longer believe. It's one of the causes, right? As opposed to, like, Job. Right? You talk about a guy who had, and all of us know the story of Job. He's like, everything came apart. Everything fell down. Everything imploded around him. And yet he could still say, even though the Lord slay me, I'll still trust in him. doesn't make a difference what I lose. What comes? I lose my own life. I'll still trust to the bitter end. Or Jesus himself, right? If anybody had reason to doubt or go into a, a fit of depression... A life of suffering, a life of being misunderstood, a life of being called the prince of demons. Goes to the cross gladly bearing our burdens. Not once angry at the Lord, but says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not once. Though you slay me, I'll trust in you. That's processing it correctly incorrectly leaves one to a stuck place. And maybe you're a person who is like, you can look back and see where you were derailed in your Christian walk and you're in a stuck place because of something that's happened in your life. And you've focused on the circumstances, the loss, and the damage. And as a result, you're stuck. That's the people, right? But it affects Moses too. Moses delivers this message to the people, and they don't listen. And we've already read it, but he tells the Lord, listen. This is my paraphrase. I told you I can't speak. I told you 
that I'm not eloquent. I delivered the message to the people just like you said, and, and they didn't listen. See, you caught the wrong guy, which is why he responds the way he does when the Lord speaks to him. And, it's, and again, he is, he, is, he is responding to the failure. Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? At this point, who is he focused on? He's focused on the fact that the people didn't listen. He's focused on the failure. He's focused on the fact that there was no success. And he too is stuck. Again, times are different. But our fallen inclination to doubt and to focus on failure is the same. Right? And you, you tend, to, with the eye of your mind, to focus on the lack or the, or, or the failure, past failure or present. It is going to have that stuck effect in your life. It does. And I, you see it over and over again. People stuck because of this, because of the focus on, on, on the failure of the past. Uh, young couple, for example. Not that I'm thinking of anybody in particular. I'm not, actually who find themselves fighting constantly because of financial debt. Mind you, there's a time in a marriage for a good argument. Not all the time, but there's a time. But God doesn't want us to stay there. But young couples arguing constantly over financial debt, and they try to fix it. They try different things. They take classes. They try different methods of saving money, only to find that it's not being fixed, that it's failure. And the cycle of trying to fix and then fail, fix and fail, fix and fail, pretty soon they settled into this surrendered place of, this is just the way it is. This is just the way it is. We're going to live in a lousy marriage and probably be in debt the rest of our lives. I know people like that. And they settle in, stuck. Why? Because they've tried and they've failed so much that they don't believe it's even possible anymore. So what's the way out? These are just, as I look in the text, these are two ways in which circumstances and failure have worked to immobilize God's people. So what's the way out? What's the, what's the positive Two things, one primary and one secondary. Because by the time you get to chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, Moses is on the move again. He's no longer stuck. The primary one, this is for all of us, and this is going to sound like rocket science, is if our focus on pain, circumstances of failure has that immobilizing effect spiritually on us, then the reverse must be true, and that is a refocus of life, a refocus of the heart, a refocus of our faith. And I, I believe that's the, those are the words, the words, the promises of God he gives here um, with his name, I am Yahweh, are to get Moses to, to re-see things in a different light. Instead of seeing the failure and the oppression and the fact that things have gone from better to worse, you focus on the I will. And you focus on my name. 
That is to say that to focus our eyes, the eyes of our faith, on the covenant promises of God and the power of his name. It has a strengthening effect, a motivating effect on, 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 on the Christian heart. And twice, God mentions the covenant that he made with Abraham. Um, a, a, a solemn, irrevocable commitment with his name at stake to follow through on what he promised. Two times, he says, I've established my covenant with them. Verse 5, I remembered, I have remembered my covenant. I swore. God swore. He took an oath to his own name. There's nothing higher. I'm going to do this. And then he breaks it down as to what that looks like with these I wills. There's eight of them just in like five or six verses. I will, I will, I will, I will. And then he, he wedges his name in there. I will, I will, I am Yahweh. I will, I am Yahweh. The name of the Lord... And I, I, let me back up for a second. The way that history is laid out, the way that God has ordained history as it unfolds in the Bible is that he reveals himself more and more in different stages of history. And you get that sense in the text. In, to, to Abraham, I made myself known or revealed myself as God Almighty or El Shaddai. Great name. But a new phase in history is here. And now I choose to reveal myself to the people of Israel in the acts of redemption and judgment as the I am, as the Lord, as Yahweh. The name is more than just a label or a way of identifying who he is, as in Bob, Billy, or Jeff. His name is his supreme commitment. I mean, David would say in Psalm 138 that the Lord has exalted above all things his name and his word. The very first words out of God's mouth when his glory passes before Moses in Exodus chapter 34 is the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the most important part. We think of names as just ways of identifying people. For God, his name is power. It conveys the essence of who he is as, as the sovereign king and as the great loving redeemer. We focus on my name. I wills in my name. And you know, another stage of God's revelation happened. When God reveals himself all the more. When the word made flesh showed up. Right? And his name was Yahweh saves. Or Yahoshua. Or Jesus. And whereas God, Yahweh, saved the people of Israel through the ministry of Moses... Yahweh would, through the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, bring deliverance to the nations. But you need to understand, like, this is where the assurance lies for God's people. For people who don't have faith and have no spirit, this is not convincing. That at the end of the day, the anchor of God's promises, our assurance, our confidence, is simply in the fact that he is Yahweh, that he has bound the reputation of his great name to following through on everything he said he would do. And a focus on that, a focus on what his name means, who he is, and what he's promised to do for us, has a way. And I'm hoping you maybe even feel a little bit right now, it's just like, 
Maybe you don't. Maybe you're bored. But just, wow, he's awesome. Because you know, all of those I wills, they like revolve around three things. Deliverance, adoption, and home. So I will bring you out. I will deliver you out of slavery, out of bondage. That's the deliverance part. He says, and I am going to make you my people, and I am going to be your God. That's family language. That's adoption language. You're going to be mine. I'm going to be yours. So there's deliverance from. There's a relationship with us. And then I'm taking you home. I'm taking you to Canaan. That's, that, that's the essence of, of, of God's saving work, right? Not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Is God, through the act of Jesus Christ, has delivered us from sin and death and bondage to sin? That we have been adopted into the family of God so we're no longer strangers, but we are members of the household of God. We share in the heritage of the saints. And Christ is leading us home to the new creation. Promised. I will, I will, I will. I am Jesus. church. This is the food of the church. This is the food for the Christian soul. This is what brings a sense of liberation and gets us unstuck. Maybe not immediately, but by focusing the eyes of the heart on who God is and what he's promised and what he's done. Over and over and over again. And has a way of like, 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 like wind in, a, in the sails of a boat pushing you forward through the storm. It's not focusing on the negatives. It's interesting to me you know, to talk about the power of positive thinking, and most people hate that stuff. But if you look at it through the lens of Scripture, you realize the Christian has every reason to be positive. Because we know that everything works to the good and to the glory of God. Like All of these promises means that everything at the end of the day is awesome. There's, there's really no room for this kind of pessimism about life. Not if you believe these words. If you don't believe them, well, yeah, be pessimistic. A lot to be pessimistic about. Focus. I was, even as I was going through this this morning, I was thinking, you know, um, where the focus of the eyes of the heart are, either in the positive direction of God's promises and the power of his name and what he's accomplished to us through Christ, the focus of your heart will either determine, depending on what it is, whether you are depleted of strength or strengthened. I believe that's the center of the passage. It just makes much of the Lord and his I wills. But there's a second one I want to throw in, and this is the last one. It's a, a contingent cure. And that is... One of the things, and you, 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 you can't get around the fact that one of the things that helped Moses move forward was that God gave him a gift. And that gift was a gift of community in the form of his brother, a Aaron. Not a Aaron, but Aaron. <laughs> I have seen the video. That is, one could see in the beginning part of seven, like Moses didn't want to go speak, and so he's like, here, I'll take your big brother. Was that merely a concession? Like, all right, you're that weak, I'll give you somebody. Because that, that brother, Aaron, his older brother, would serve by his side in ways that were necessary. 
at one point, he's, the armies of Israel are in battle, and, and the Lord says, as long as you hold your arms up, then they're going to win. And if they sag down, then you're going to lose. And he couldn't hold them up. I mean, by that time, he's probably 100 years old. And what did his big brother do? But he lifted his arms. Is that a way that, and I believe that it's not just accidental, it's not just a concession, but it's God's way of saying that we go together. That I mean, Jesus could march as deliver all by himself because he was that, that strong. Not Moses, not you, not me. I'll, I, this is not an overstatement. My life would have went a thousand different bad directions if God hadn't placed brothers in my life. People who, when I found myself tempted or found myself even in a position that was in a bad place, to come along and help me out of it. That relationship I told you I opened with that was better part of three years, I had a brother who came to me, an Aaron who said, what are you doing, Dan? And because of that simple conversation and pointing me back to the Lord, I was able to cut the cord. You can't minimize the importance of family, church family, brothers around you to help in this process of growth and helping us move forward. Is it going to happen in an instant? No, it didn't then either. Still a whole sequence of events that need to happen before they're free. But church, this is, this is the way forward. Always has been. It's a gift for us that God has revealed who he is and his name and his promises and what he's done. And then he's given us a, 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 an almost an immeasurable gift in having spiritual family around us to help us. So I hope you take advantage of that and, and invest in those relationships with people around you. Um, not just for their sake, but for your sake. Because we don't stand alone. You know, like that author many years ago said, there's no man is an island. You're not, and you don't exist well by yourself. I pray that encourages you, especially those of you who might find yourself in a place that's stuck. You don't have to stay there. God doesn't want you there. And you know, if you're his, he will move you out of it because his promises are sure, and he completes what he starts in your life, right? Father, um, we just lay this word before you. I lay your church family, my family, before you and ask that you, in your grace and in your wisdom, would take these words of truth, this example, these names of who you are, and just allow them to dwell in the hearts of your people, not just in the minds, but in the heart. In Christ's name.